0: I'm Andrew Blumenfeld, and this is the Money in Politics podcast. On previous episodes, we've had an opportunity to speak about polling and how campaigns can use that as a tool to make key spending decisions. But we've also talked about the limitations of that polling. Increasingly, technology is becoming available to campaigns of all shapes and sizes that want to leverage the power of data and machine learning to give them insights that they need to win. So what does that mean? It includes examining millions of data points, including really important fundraising data, things like the size of donations the frequency of donations, the characteristics of the donors, lots more, using all of that data so that softwares can learn to detect patterns and insights that campaigns can then use to decide where to spend their money, how to organize their field operations, and other critical decisions. If it sounds very technical and intimidating, not to worry. I have Max Wood here today to help us all understand. Max is the founder of DEC, which leverages the power of data science to help Democrats predict who is likely to vote and who they will likely support and what they can do to win their races. But first, a quick message from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Calltime AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, Calltime AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy to use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. So I'm joined now by Max Wood. Max, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about DECK. So you founded DECK in 2015, and my understanding is that an aim of yours was to really help local and state Democratic campaigns in particular. Maybe share with folks a little bit about what motivated you to build that company and some of yours and DECK's key accomplishments that have transpired since then.
1: Yeah, so that's all right. I guess I worked on the Obama campaigns in a few different roles and then did consulting for political campaigns. And in that role, worked on all kinds of different races and also working for advocacy programs at the state and national level and different sorts of groups trying to accomplish different sorts of things. And I think In the progressive ecosystem at that time, (laughs) the idea was the Obama campaign in 2008 and 2012 worked really well. We had this organizing model that worked really well, and we had this approach to using predictive analytics that worked really well. And so to solve every problem we care about, we just have to figure out how to Take those two ideas and fit them to all these different campaigns and causes, and we'll succeed, which might as well try it. But I think what I saw when I was working with these programs that were not the Obama campaign was that there was a pretty rough fit, particularly on the predictive analytics side. So, in a big campaign, like on the Clinton, Biden, Obama campaigns, big Senate and gubernatorial races, big national advocacy programs, and big marketing programs in the corporate world. Generally, in order to curate the audience that you're going to reach for whatever your objective is, to win an election, to turn out voters, to raise money, you do some kind of research to get like ground truth data on who believes X, Y, or Z, who will do A, B, or C. And then you collect that data for thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of people. And you use the traits of those people and the data you've collected to predict sort of which traits indicate what people will do uh, who are outside of your sort of the data that you've collected. And that costs a lot of money and requires that people know what you're talking about and that you're operating in like a really big context where you can actually get that many people to answer the phone or respond to an online panel or whatever it is. So I guess around 2014, I was working on this program in Alabama that was designed to help Democrats in the state Senate Hmm. not I guess they already had lost the majority and now the question was was there gonna be a Republican supermajority? And so there was this big program and they hired a bunch of organizers and they wanted to build predictive models for all these state Senate races to predict who was gonna vote for these candidates, who was gonna make contributions to them, who was persuadable. And those districts were so small we couldn't do surveys in each one of them. And the organization had a limited budget. So we did this sort of statewide survey asking people if they were going to vote for Democrats or Republicans in the state Senate. And we used that then to predict what all these other people in the state were going to do on election day. And in the end, the model worked pretty poorly because in each of these districts, you know, in one district, a candidate had a DUI the week before election day. There was like <laughs> a local newscaster. There was the Senate majority leader had been indicted or something for some corruption scandal. Wow. There were all sorts of wild local things that made people sort of like act outside of whatever their sort of partisan default was. And mm. the more I look into this, the more I saw that was normal. The further you go down ballot, the more people's sort of ideological rigidity sort of waivers. And it doesn't waver enough, but it waivers some. And it makes a big difference in these races. Anywho, I, I saw that we weren't paying enough attention to down-ballot races and started deck with the intent to sort of rethink how we do initially just targeting for down-ballot races on the left and how we do it in sort of a smart, data-savvy, tech-forward way. And then also sort of how we equip these campaigns to make better decisions about how to spend their money, how to raise money, how to organize their volunteers, how to track which earned media they're getting and, and how it matters or doesn't matter. And that's Deck was, you know, Deck sort of emerged as the solution to all of those, all of those threads.
0: What were some of your approaches that helped to combat what had been the problem you were describing before with too many local variables influencing the ability of like a typical predictive model to account for like the way someone's partisanship may influence their decision to vote. Did, it sounds like you made some progress on that question in the form of deck. Maybe tell us a little bit about what were some of the the innovations there that allowed you to combat that problem for down ballot races?
1: Yeah. So uh, yeah, I guess I skipped the part where we figured it out. <laughs> it works, <laughs> right? So I guess the big r- reveal for us was That in surveys about down ballot races, people largely will say they don't know what they're going to do and they don't recognize the candidates months out. They will recognize the candidates to a much larger degree, like a couple weeks out, but people aren't plugged in on these races in June when you need to start making big decisions about resource allocation and targeting. So the way that our models work is that we take historic data on sort of like granular, small geography election results, like polling places. And we look at, let's say there's a polling place where there were 30 votes, right, cast in an election. We can see which people voted there. So like who was assigned to that polling place at that time? What were their traits at that time, their demographic traits, their socioeconomic traits, etc.? So that's kind of one category of predictors that go into this model. And the output is sort of what the result was. We also layer in traits about the candidates who were on the ballot. So who was the Democrat? Who's a Republican, Libertarian, Green Party, maybe, if they're on the ballot? Who's an incumbent, if anybody? How long have they been in office? What other elected offices have people held? And then we bring in campaign finance data. And so how much money people have raised, and that's important, but also sort of who's making contributions to people ends up being Mm. really important in these models. So do your contributors resemble the population in your district? Are they largely in district rather than out of district? Are people maxing out their to the contribution limits? Or do you have more room to get more funding from the people who have made an initial contribution? And then also like what percent of your donors are first time donors to a race like yours? Or Registered recently, and these are all signals that our model takes as indicating there is enthusiasm for you locally. And then another set of variables orbits around sort of media coverage. So we license data from a few partners that give us a look at local TV news, what's in, you know, newspapers and different media markets, of course, what's online. And we've built tools to kind of go through all this media coverage and look for mentions of specific candidates and understand sort of what's the context of those mentions and what's the sentiment of those mentions and how many people likely saw that piece of coverage. There's a little bit more, but basically all that kind of stuff goes together. And we don't do surveys. We just take evidence from the past all around the country of how certain kinds of voters have reacted to certain kinds of candidates in certain contexts and have built a model trained on hundreds of millions of those precinct-level election result records to then predict what new voters will do presented with sort of a new slate of candidates in a new context.
0: Hmm. I have a bunch of questions about that, but let me start with the bottom line, which is how successful was that in this last cycle?
1: Uh, That was great. Our main goal is to help people do better targeting, but you you can also take these Scores and like roll them up into a forecast and see how that performs. So, I should say on the targeting piece, one of the ways that we're able to validate it is there are candidates who are very well known, like Senate candidates and mm-hmm. high-profile congressional candidates, and we'll look at their survey IDs either from polls where we've collect, a campaign has given us their survey IDs to validate our models, or we've seen survey IDs that campaigns collecting through their field outreach, and we can validate against that and validates really well. And then in our forecasts, our average error in 2020 was about three and a half percent. And 95% of our forecast fell within our 95% confidence interval. Mm. So that was good. But polling in the races that we support, we worked with about 1,100 campaigns in 2020. The polling in the races where we had access to it was off by five or six percent. And mm. so our methods, despite having no requiring no survey data being dramatically cheaper and like updating in real time, you know, as the environment Mm -hmm. changes, we're actually on average more accurate than survey based methods
0: really interesting especially given how much scrutiny surveys are receiving right now it's a yeah. really interesting uh, you know sounds like the future of how to kind of keep track of these things i want to go back to well, there's a couple pieces of that that i'd love to dig in deeper on the first is the the fundraising piece you chatted a, a little bit about what are some of those inputs and then i think you suggested that those were kind of like proxies for enthusiasm which makes sense any other insights that you gleaned from all of I mean, you sliced and diced financial data in a really interesting way, just to kind of repeat some of the things you said, right? The in-district, out-of-district, max, not max, um, that kind of thing. Any other kind of insights you were able to take away from how the makeup of someone's donor pool or anything else about their fundraising influenced how you recommended targeting and what the ultimate outcome was in their race?
1: Yeah, I think Contributor traits are really important and that is especially Hmm. true in primaries, right? So if your contributors are thirty percent eighteen to twenty four year olds and your district is ten percent eighteen to twenty four year olds, you're dramatically overperforming because the model would expect to see a much lower share of eighteen to twenty four year olds in your you know, among your contributors than among the electorate overall. So things like that really matter, and that then helps affect our turnout predictions, our predictions of who will make contributions to you, all those things. Another factor, though, that matters is sort of the trend line in your contributions. So for example, Amy McGrath, I think everybody was getting super excited about Mm -hmm. Amy McGrath in the summertime. And then I think enthusiasm waned as for whatever reason, it became clear, you know, Mitch McConnell was going to do better than we all probably go for in mm-hmm. 2020. And then you also see, though, her, the velocity of her contributions really slows at that point too. Mm. And so we're still tinkering with exactly how to capture this as a feature, but we've seen that it really matters, like, over the last month or so, what's the slope of your mm. contribution trend line day to day, for example.
0: The issue of it being a local race or small race, or maybe the volume of contributions is much much lower. That's okay. I mean, I guess I, you're able to to get that insight for local campaigns, even if they don't. I mean, obviously Amy McGrath is an extreme example, but even if they're sort of your kind of run of the mill local, maybe even state legislative race, they're just not getting that kind of volume of contributions. It sounds like, nevertheless, you were able to use that and other data to help provide some really really accurate insights to folks.
1: Yeah, that's right. Our accuracy doesn't really vary by size of race. The only category where we really see our accuracy shift in a meaningful way is how close the race ends up being. Hmm. We're more accurate in close races hmm. than we are in races where it's a really lopsided outcome. And I think there's a few reasons for that. Like Often in those cases, a candidate isn't like running a, a real campaign, mm, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. also in closer races, there's a just a much higher volume and variety of the kind of media and finance data that matters. Right. That said, one factor in our models is that the models understand what like how much data to expect. Like your a state legislative model is like trained on state legislative training data, and so mm. that's one. Piece of it. And then also, we have flags in our training data assembly process where we can detect oh, we think this actually, there's something wrong with this finance data. Like maybe hmm. somebody has filed late and we're missing a report for them, or there's reason to think that we might have matched to the wrong candidate. And then we'll just turn on a flag that the finance data is suspicious, you know, and that person can get a version of the model that doesn't include finance variables or itemized contribution variables or TV caption-derived variables. So when there are problems with the data or there isn't a high enough volume of it, then like we can shift to a version of our models that don't rely on that category yeah. of data.
0: It's really almost overwhelming kind of how much you're able to provide to all of these down ballot races and to so many of them. I think you said 1100. It doesn't seem as if the world of available tools usually allows for that level of sophistication, that quality of software and technology to races that are not sort of the big ticket items. I'm curious about your takeaway about all of that. Is it A, am I right? I mean, is it your take also that down ballot races typically don't have access to some of these great technologies? Why is that the case? How are you all able to come in and provide it in a way that's affordable and accessible? Yeah, I'm just uh, that sort of intersection of technology costs down ballot, you clearly know a lot about that. I'd love to get your thoughts.
1: Yeah, thanks. I mean, that's certainly the goal is to make a sophisticated product available to campaigns that normally wouldn't have access to it. I think there are cool tools like call time, I think is a really cool tool <laughs> that any a campaign of any size could probably get a lot of good use out of. And there are probably others I'm thinking of speak easy, which helps people mm-hmm. do kind of advertising and direct mail Civitech helps people do a lot of interesting things. And of course, you know, Builder is used by God knows how many campaigns. I think, though, our North Star has always been to serve the smaller campaigns. I do think there is a business model for us that would generate more revenue and impact a smaller number of races, like a dramatically smaller number of races. Like if we just focused on providing sort of white glove service and really like overwhelming and sophisticated and like mind blowing features Mm to the presidential and US Senate like campaigns of the world or of the country. I think we would do pretty well with that actually, but it's just not A problem, like they're fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They have plenty of resources and plenty of help and institutional knowledge. So, yeah, I guess the problem isn't that it's technically impossible or impossible to sort of build a product in this space that serves these users. It's like a business problem. And it is, frankly, like one that's really challenging. We're still trying to figure out the right balance in sustaining ourselves as a team and charging prices that make it really easy for campaigns and organizations of of all kinds to try us out and get comfortable with it, even though it might be something they're not used to engaging with. So yeah, I guess I don't have super eloquent thoughts other than that it's something I struggle with every day is thinking about how can we continue to make this sustainable and operate at a big scale. I guess also I'd say that the down-ballot campaign market if you're talking about state ledge and like statewide, which is kind of where we, you know, mainly operated in 2020, it's almost a big market, but it's not, there's like 7,000 possible campaigns and a thousand end up being somewhat competitive and Mm -hmm. challenged in a way that like, there's like a, a campaign that could subscribe to a tool like that. And so We're trying to figure out how do we make a version of deck that's accessible to the hundreds of thousands of much Mm -hmm. smaller races, like people running for city council and county council and public service commissions everywhere. We're actively writing code on that right now, and hopefully we'll Mm -hmm. have something in the next couple months. But Mm -hmm. something even with state legislative campaigns is we come out of the gate explaining our models are different because of this, this, this methodological choice. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you talking about models? <laughs> you know, like we don't we they haven't had access to this stuff because right. it costs so much money. So anyway, it's a struggle for sure.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing that and kind of lending some insight because I know we have a lot of people who listen who I know are very involved in campaigns and on the campaign side of things, a lot of finance staff, candidates and Consultants who work in and around campaigns. And I think a piece of the ecosystem, those who work in sort of like the vendor space trying to provide tools to those campaigns, they're in the business of really better understanding the nature of campaigns uh, so that they can serve them, that they can be attractive to them, so that they can kind of sell to them. But I'm hopeful that even just this conversation will actually be illuminating in the reverse, that campaigns can get a little bit of insight about the plight and struggle, if you will, (laughs) of of trying to be a vendor serving campaigns. I think you raise a lot of really good points that there's, on the one hand, a really deep, authentic desire on the part of a lot of people in this space, obviously, including yourself, to provide high quality services, first and foremost, so that people up and down the ballot, ballot have access to the tools they need to run really high quality campaigns. But making that work from a business perspective, for all the reasons you just said, can definitely be tough. Well, let me first say, just I appreciate all the work that you all do on that front. (laughs) Thanks, yeah. Maybe shift gears just a little bit back to the predictions piece of this, because you did just mention those models and and a lot of what you were sharing at the outset of our conversation was all the many interesting things that go into your models to help campaigns with their targeting and and turnout predictions, those sorts of things. It seems on the one hand that campaign space seems especially ripe for the use of predictions as a technology, that there's all sorts of reasons why you might want to forecast and predict in campaigns campaigns, any number of things, and that there's theoretically a lot of data to some degree available. There's all sorts of fundraising and finance data, all sorts of voter data, all sorts of media data, et cetera. And yet, it's not the most common thing to see so much predictive technology, I would say, in campaign campaign stack. Just any thoughts you have, would I'd be really interested about, Like, what do you think it takes for the political space to continue to ramp up its sophistication when it comes to leveraging machine learning and predictions within the industry?
1: It's a great question. I don't know. I mean, honestly, when we're explaining our product to people, my first instinct is to geek out on the predictions piece, but (laughs) we've seen that we just lose people when we're trying to explain our product (laughs) in terms of prediction. So we first talk about the ways that you use the product. So you can use it to launch Facebook ads. You can use it to do X, Y, or Z. And then kind of if people are curious about how do I know this Facebook ad is going to the right person, we like Mm. unload on the modeling piece. (laughs) I think there's a couple reasons it's tricky. One is... I remember coming out of the first and the second Obama campaign, it was really cool and like sexy that we were using data to predict like Mm. what people are going to, how people think about politics and using that to sort of do more targeted organizing and outreach. And now I think it's seen as very creepy and weird. (laughs) And I think that that vibe is like toxic to campaigns and people who operate Mm. in politics. So I think that's one piece of it is that even predictive technology does undergird things that we do. We sort of don't want to think too much about that part of the process and yeah. advertise it as like a in the campaign world. I'm happy to talk about and advertise it and talk as much <laughs> as possible. I guess as far as like what could be happening that isn't, there's so much, I think one of my big pet peeves is fundraising communications these days Mm. are just brutal. These emails that come from some of these, I don't want
0: to, I don't want to like, you don't have to name names. We all know who you're talking about.
1: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it stinks. And I like, it stinks for multiple levels. Number one, I just don't like this fundraising approach that's become popular of like straight up lying to people Mm -hmm. or misleading Mm -hmm. them or confusing them into donating. But also I find it weird because these emails that say john ossoff just called me last night and said that you are the number one person that has to donate Mm -hmm. or else he'll quit the race (laughs) no seriously i'm like not the audience for that and there is a lot of data that can tell you that (laughs) and number one the fact that like i've given as much money as i can to john ossoff you know number two the fact that i work in politics number you like And given money to lots of campaigns, like there is like so much public, very easily accessible data that could make these obnoxious communications like much more tailored to what a person is going to respond to. And Mm -hmm. given the amount of I mean, of course, we're doing very well on the left in fundraising these days. So, I mean, people might just be satisfied with where we are, but it feels like given the importance of fundraising, I'm surprised people aren't doing more to customize and tailor fundraising communication and then that brings you to this whole other thing of customizing and tailoring person-to-person communication Mm, mm -hmm. you know there's this new thing that relational organizing is like the big thing where people Mm. reach out to their friends and pressure them i wonder how much of that though is just that you actually know how to talk to your friend right without making them feel very weird yeah because i've gotten campaign texts and calls that make me feel good even though it's a stranger and I've gotten ones that make me feel pretty weird. Mm-hmm. And so I do think there's like the targeting question, but mm-hmm. there's also the sort of how to approach somebody with your ask and make them feel comfortable question where obviously in the marketing and corporate world like that is like the main application of data these days is like what marketing email, what product recommendation, what design, you know, fits you like what Instagram ads like will you tap on? Whereas I don't think we're quite there in politics, even though we've got the targeting piece down pretty well.
0: Yeah, the fundraising piece of that, I agree is so interesting, because, yeah, you can't imagine that there's any sort of long term success to that kind of Slash and burn, obnoxious, yeah, uh, you know, approach to it. Even if there may be some immediate, short-term return on it. And one of the things that I found interesting is the efforts to use predictions. You know, I don't really much talk about call time on this podcast, but I will for a second because you should. It fits. call time is awesome. <laughs> well, it fits right here in our conversation, so I'll I'll drop it in, which is. The attention that we've paid to providing insights about the person you are about to personally call as the candidate, you see that there's a tremendous demand for that because the candidate doesn't want to get on the phone. And let's put it this way, John Ossoff would never have been comfortable making that email that you received into a personal phone call to you right, right? he would have right. never tolerated <laughs> that but when it well, goes I'm out i'm just
1: going to quit this race <laughs> yeah, exactly
0: <laughs> but for some reason if it's going to go out under his name or under his banner to thousands and tens of thousands maybe even hundreds of thousands of people it suddenly becomes acceptable and i think that that's just wild right and it can't yeah. be what people actually want on the sender or the receiver's end right. and so i totally agree the leveraging of machine learning predictions to make smart decisions about how you're communicating with people. It's not like people don't intuitively understand that. Because again, we see on our side of the ledger where people are making those individual communications, they take that very seriously. So I think yep. it's just a matter of of extending that intuition maybe to the rest of the enterprise. And it makes me think also of just like the the market's receptivity to the idea that you're going to use machine learning or AI and all that stuff. There's sometimes a lot of uh, skepticism about that. Have you encountered that kind of skepticism? Oh, this doesn't work, or you're not actually doing what you say you're doing under the hood. I just wonder like, what the market's take has been, even when you have tried to kind of put in front of people the part of what you do that is powered by machine learning.
1: Yeah. Certainly. I mean, most people don't out and say this is some like fake Theranos (laughs) crap, but like, (laughs) I've definitely like picked up on that from some people. So we try to be as transparent as possible about our methods and about what, what goes right and what goes wrong, both kind of in our sales calls and marketing conversations. And also, you know, we have a public evaluations page where we publish like every forecast we've made Mm -hmm. and what actually happened when we have results and have posted public blogs that go in, I think, a lot of detail in terms of our, you know, our methods, more detail than I think most organizations in our space give for that kind of thing. Then we also have much more detailed documentation that we provide, you know, whenever anybody's curious. So that's, I think the goal is just to be open as much as possible show people raw training data as much as possible mm. so there's the what are you even doing which all that is meant to address but there is the this doesn't work and my district's different and mm. all of that which everybody says and it's true and it's and i think though that that's why our approach works is it's mm. trained on it's trained to like notice signal about those differences mm. and suss out sort of what that means for you So we try to explain that. Sometimes it's successful, sometimes it isn't.
0: Well, and I think like any technology, right? Machine learning, it'll take some time to be fully adopted. And part of the job, I suppose, of people who are in your line of work is just to, by being on the cutting edge, is just like sometimes it's a little lonely out there for a while, right? Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Well, hey, it's been really great chatting with you. But before I let you go, just for those listening who are excited to learn more about how they might be able to take advantage of all that DEC does in the future... Where do you want to point people?
1: Yeah, go to deck.tools on the World Wide Web. (laughs) We also have a Twitter that I think is deck underscore tools and an Instagram that is deck tools. And you can email me at max at deck.tools and we'd love to chat with you.
0: Awesome. Well, hoping that it sparks many conversations. It certainly was a wonderful one here today. Thank you so much, Max. It was really great chatting with you.
1: Thanks so much. It was great chatting with you.
0: All right. Take care. Bye. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the CallTime AI blog at www.calltime.ai and follow us on Twitter at CallTime AI.